Good morning, everybody. So glad to be with you today. A funny thing happens. Internet works for me all week, and the printer works for me all week, except when I'm trying to print my sermon on Sundays. So go figure. I think somebody doesn't want you to hear the message. Um, I want to thank you guys, first of all. It's good to be back. Thank you for... uh, for allowing Dylan and I to go to the Gospel Coalition National Conference this past week in Indianapolis. And it was a great time for us to be sharpened and trained and encouraged and and to network with other pastors across the country so that we can uh, serve you better here at Cedar Home. And I also want to thank Dylan for stepping up a few weeks ago when I had the flu and and he did a great job and praise God the Spirit worked through him. Uh, Also, I want to mention that today's passage... Uh, and this Friday's passage, even though Good Friday is a family service, there's not child care, I do want you to know that uh, we're at the point in John's gospel where he details Jesus' flogging and crucifixion. And so if you don't feel like your kids are ready to hear that today, then um, you're welcome to, to take them to junior church uh, at this time. I don't know how many of you saw this picture, the, the cover of, of Time Magazine a couple of weeks ago, but it simply asked in uh, big red letters, is truth dead? Uh, I think we have a copy of it. Yeah, that was, that was what it looked like, and uh, I thought it was so ironic since just two days earlier I had preached in the passage in John in which Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? Even though we are in the 21st century and we we take great pride in being so knowledgeable and advanced and sophisticated. We are still asking the exact same questions that people were asking 2,000 years ago before there was internet or television or airplanes or electricity or the printing press. In 2017, our world is still asking the same questions that Jesus already answered 2,000 years ago. And this is one reason why it's foolish and it's, it's really inaccurate to depict the Bible as out of date or irrelevant. Because what Jesus said during his life on earth is extremely relevant to you and me. And what Jesus did to purchase eternal life for everybody who trusts in him is always relevant. Jesus is never out of date. The gospel doesn't expire. Jesus is always relevant to us whether we're believers or not. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to John chapter 18, verse 35. And it's been a few weeks since we've been in this passage, so let me kind of review here. Uh, Jesus is just arrested by the Romans and the Jews. And the Jewish court called the Sanhedrin uh, has just judged Jesus as a heretic, accusing him of blasphemy since he claimed to be the Messiah, God in human flesh, who came to rescue the world eternally from their sin. And so the Jews uh, wanted Jesus put to death, but since they were being occupied by Rome, they didn't have the authority to kill him. So they brought him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, hoping that they could get him to kill Jesus. And we've seen that from the beginning of Jesus' trial before Pilate, Pilate is not convinced of Jesus' guilt. In fact, Jesus appears to be the exact opposite of how the Jews are trying to characterize Jesus. Jesus appears very non-threatening. He's unassuming. He's weak. 
doesn't look like somebody trying to lead a revolt against the Roman Empire or the Jews. And in addition to that, Pilate's wife, we read, had, had just told Pilate not to punish Jesus because she had had a vivid dream about Jesus and said, don't touch this man. And so Pilate has Jesus come into his headquarters so that he can question Jesus in private. And that's where we're gonna pick up here. And before we read the word, let's ask the Lord to help us again. Dear Lord, we thank you for saying and doing everything we're about to read in this passage. As your church, we believe that you are the way and the truth and the life. You are the true king. You are the high priest. You are our good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. And you are the spotless lamb of God who died to take away our sins. So we read your word today. Please give us eyes to see you today, faith to trust you, and hearts that desire to worship you for who you are and for what you've done for us. Please protect us from the evil one. May your name be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 18, 35 to 38, let's start there. In Pilate's headquarters, we read that Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So Jesus tells Pilate that he is a king, but that his kingdom is not from earth. Jesus' kingdom is over the earth, but it didn't begin on earth. Jesus' kingdom never began. It's always been. And Jesus' kingdom is from heaven, he says. His kingdom is the kingdom of light. Jesus' kingdom is alien, alien. It's, it's disturbing to the kingdoms of earth because the kingdoms of earth remain in the darkness of sin that want to hide from the light so that their evil works may not be exposed, is what Jesus has said. So Jesus tells Pilate that if he's guilty of anything, he's guilty of telling the truth. People who want to disregard reality do not listen to Jesus' voice. But people who want to know reality listen to Jesus' voice. So Pilate responds to Jesus by simply asking, what is truth? Pilate wasn't interested in having a spiritual conversation with Jesus. As a Roman, he was probably um, polytheistic, believed in a number of different gods, and then you throw in the Greek culture too with their gods, and there was a lot of gods 
being worshipped in that culture. He, but that wasn't what Pilate was really interested in here. He wasn't interested in having a philosophical or theological conversation with Jesus. Pilate just wants to know if Jesus had broken any of the Roman laws so that he could just make a judgment and get on with his day and be done by lunch. But according to verse 38, Pilate concludes that Jesus had not done anything wrong. And Pilate goes back outside to the Jews and he tells them, I find no guilt in him. And we know from the other gospel accounts that right about this point, Pilate learns that Jesus is from Galilee, which is up north. And it is not in Pilate's jurisdiction. Okay? Pilate's in Jerusalem. Galilee up, up north is in Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod happens to be in Jerusalem right now to celebrate the Passover feast. So this is great, Pilate's thinking, because now he can just send Jesus to Herod, which is going to get Jesus off his hands and get the Jews off his back. And so, um, so that's what he's going to do. He's going to send him over to Herod. Now, as a side note, I got to tell you, the more you study the Bible, the more that you study history, archaeology outside the Bible, the more you study the sciences, I believe the more you discover how trustworthy the Bible is as a historical text. Okay, this is just one of the little fun things I, I found uh, this week as I was studying this. Archaeologists have discovered ancient Roman coins that were used as currency in the empire around this time, around the time of Jesus' life. And written on the coin in Greek on the right, um, well, first of all, you can't, it's kind of hard to see in the middle. These are really old coins. But it is a palm branch. And what's a palm branch? It's the symbol of Israel, right? Why would the Romans have a symbol of Israel on their coin? Because Herod was of the Jewish lineage. And in Greek, on the left side, you could kind of, it says Herod, okay? So even, <laughs> we have this, the Roman coinage, which verifies that Herod was in power at the time that Jesus was crucified. So again, we have another piece of evidence outside the Bible validating the truth of the gospel accounts. Not that we need external evidence, but I just find it amazing that the more we look outside the Bible, the more we see verification for the Bible. Um, Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod, okay? And according to Luke's gospel, Herod really isn't very interested in Jesus. Herod uh, just wants Jesus he, to do some tricks for him, is what he says. Do some magic tricks and entertain me. Uh, but Jesus doesn't oblige, and he just stays quiet. So... The Jewish leaders, they came along with Jesus following him, and they began to tell Herod how terrible Jesus is and, and why he should be condemned. And, and while they're doing that, we read that uh, Herod's servants over to the side are mocking Jesus and actually um, dressing him up in royal robes, mocking him for being this king of the Jews. And after some time, Herod kind of wants to get back to his business. And so he also decides that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. And so he wants him off his hands, so he sends him back to Pilate. So neither Herod nor Pilate find Jesus guilty of anything. And at the same time, neither one of them want to free Jesus because they don't want the Jewish leaders to start a riot. Okay? They don't want them to start a riot which would make trouble for Herod or for Pilate. 
Who goes down? Pilate's the one who's going to get in trouble if there's a riot on his hands. So, so we return here to John 18, 38, where Pilate tells the Jews that he finds no guilt in Jesus. And then Pilate continues, but he's talking to the crowd here, led by the Jews. You have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? The reason that Pilate calls Jesus the king of the Jews is because he, he doesn't really like the Jews. He wants to irritate the Jews. He doesn't want them to riot, but he also enjoys uh, lording over them his power. He wants them to know he's the one in charge. And he's tired of the Jews, and as far as he knows, Jesus might be their king. He knows Jesus is innocent, but he gives, Jesus, or he gives the Jews the option of forgiving Jesus. I'm giving you the chance to forgive this man, to release him, because it's the Passover. In verse 40, the Jews cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. So Pilate gave the crowd a really concrete choice, either to release Jesus, who had broken no Roman laws or Jewish laws, or to release Barabbas, who was a robber, And according to the other gospel writers, he was a known murderer. He was a rebel against the Roman Empire. Barabbas was guilty of robbing people, okay, scaring people and stealing their money from them and their possessions. Barabbas was guilty of murdering people. And Barabbas was an insurrectionist, which means that he was what we would consider a terrorist, Okay? He used violent means to terrorize the Roman Empire. And in Pilate's eyes, it couldn't be an easier decision to give the crowd. Do you want me to release Jesus to you, or do you want me to release a terrorist to you? Don't you want me to release Jesus to you? Is how he says, the king of the Jews. And the crowd shouts, not this man. We want Barabbas. And in this, we just see the depth of our human depravity. Okay. The Jews would rather have a violent robber, murderer, terrorist living among them than Jesus of Nazareth. What were they thinking? And how could you hate God, hate Jesus so much that you'd rather live with a violent terrorist than with Jesus? You hate Jesus so much that you'd rather see injustice done than justice. You'd rather see a perfect person punished as a terrorist than to keep your families and children safe from terrorists. And according to Matthew 27, 26, Pilate did just that. He freed Barabbas from prison and he kept Jesus in chains. Put your mind... Try to imagine for a minute what Barabbas must have been thinking. How do you think Barabbas felt uh, when the crowd was shouting for his release? It's possible he was there. It's possible Pilate had him at his side. It's also possible, I believe, in the court, I think I read there was a, it's called the Tower of Antonius or something. There's a prison right close by where he would have heard the cries, okay? But either way, What was going through his mind? Because think about this. He knew the terrible things that he had done, and where was he headed? 
He was headed for the cross. That's where terrorists went. He was on his way to the cross. But then all of a sudden, a crowd of Jews are demanding his release. And then the Roman leader Pilate agrees to free him from prison and also from his punishment of death. We don't know what Barabbas knew about Jesus, but Barabbas must have concluded that either an innocent man was going to be punished in his place or Jesus of Nazareth must have been even more violent and more dangerous than he. At the end of the day, though, Barabbas' crimes had been excused and Jesus would suffer in his place. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. We are just like Barabbas. We're guilty of breaking God's laws. Maybe some of us in here have robbed. Maybe we've murdered. Maybe we've committed crimes against the government. Maybe, maybe we haven't. We do know this, that our sin nature and every offense against God, against others, is ultimately against God. And that we have committed acts of criminal rebellion against God himself, who is infinitely greater than the Roman emperor. And apart from Jesus, we stand in God's court and we stand guilty. We stand guilty of of lying, cheating, of lust, of gossiping, slandering people, envying our neighbor, dividing hating others, abusing people, and rebelling against the majesty on high, the three-in-one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And unlike Annas, or Caiaphas, or Pilate, or Herod, our God is a righteous judge, okay? So get this, it does not matter if all of the powers of heaven, all of the angels came to God's side and begged God to forget about our crimes, God will not turn a blind eye to our crimes. And our rebellion against God doesn't merit community service. It doesn't merit life in prison. Rebellion against the perfect eternal God, God says, deserves eternal separation from him and eternal suffering for despising him for rejecting him. And you and I stand in God's court as Barabbas's. Our guilt is clear. The verdict is a no-brainer. But in God's court, remember this. We have a perfectly righteous judge who always does what is right. And Jesus says that he is the judge. All judgment has been handed to him. And condemning all of us to hell would be a perfectly righteous and just punishment for us to give. But amazingly, and I I don't think any of us understand this, breathtakingly, graciously, our judge Jesus, who is God over everything, loves us. In spite of our rebellion against him, he is full of mercy. He is gracious and loving. And it's, we know that that's the reason he created us in the first place, is to share his grace and love and mercy with us. 
And so in Jesus' courtroom, he doesn't pretend that you and I have not rebelled against him. He, he does not pretend that we are innocent. But what he does is this. He comes down from the judge's stand and he approaches us. And he asks us, will you, be, will you let me be punished in your place? Will you let me take away your sin and your guilt so that you don't have to die and suffer in hell apart from me? Will you let me free you from the sin that's chaining you right now to Satan and sin and hell and death? Will you let me bring you home to heaven with me? And Jesus can truly and righteously offer that to us, not just because he's the judge, but because he suffered the punishment for our crimes against him on our behalf. Jesus was mocked by Herod's servants. He was clothed in royal robes so that we could be clothed with his divinely royal righteousness, okay? Barabbas was freed and Jesus was kept in chains so that you and I could be freed from our sin that chains us to Satan and hell and death. And to everyone who says yes to Jesus in faith, he frees them. He frees them from this eternal spiritual bondage. And you and I will someday stand in Jesus' courtroom, either when we die or when he comes back to earth. But on that day, Jesus isn't going to come down from the stand. And he's not going to offer to save us because that's what he's doing right now, you guys. That's what Jesus is doing this morning for you. Trust in him today and be saved. Turn to him now and be freed from sin and Satan and hell and death. Turn to Jesus now while he offers to save you. Because when you stand in his courtroom someday, our case will be very clear. Either we trusted in Jesus on earth and turned away from our sin, or we refused Jesus on earth and we embraced our sin. Either we allowed him to suffer in our place, which means that there's no suffering in eternity left for us to suffer, or we rejected his suffering, which means that there's an eternity of suffering left for us to suffer. For all of us in here, either you have been Barabbas and you have trusted in Jesus as your substitute, or you are Barabbas right now and Jesus offers to be your substitute. What will you choose today? And if you have trusted in Jesus, the God who loves you, then every time you read about Barabbas, remind yourself, that's me. <laughs> that was me. Jesus took my place because he loved me. Jesus suffered my punishment in my place. What a savior he is. Jesus saved my life. He saved my soul. I was going to hell. So now, what do I want to do with the time I have left on earth? What do I want to do with eternity? I want to give to Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. I want to live with Jesus. I want to dedicate my words and my work and my hobbies and my money and my art and my family and all my relationships to him. I want to see Jesus glorified in this earth because I know who he is. I know what he did for me. 
I want to worship Jesus well this Easter week. This is, you guys, if you're in Christ, this week is your week. You get that? This is because this is Jesus' week. And if you're a Christian, you're with Jesus. This is our victory week. Sunday is Jesus' day. That's why we worship on Sundays. It's the day he rose. Not just it's a good day to get together. It's the day he rose. We remember that every time we are together. And so Barabbas here was freed. Just like you and I have been. if We've trusted in Jesus. And Jesus stood before the crowd as Barabbas goes free. And Jesus is still awaiting his judgment. But Pilate found no guilt in Jesus. And Pilate knew that Jesus didn't deserve to die. That would, just, that would be wrong. He knew that. But Pilate thought that maybe he could just punish Jesus with a flogging, with a beating, so that the Jews would be appeased. And then he could let Jesus go. And so we read in John 19, 1, that then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And flogging was a, a brutal method that Romans used to punish criminals. Um, D.A. Carson writes that the Romans had three different levels of floggings. Each one has a, a Latin word, and so I'm not gonna, that wouldn't help us, but I'll just kind of describe the different levels. One was, you could say, very painful. One was horribly painful. And one was almost dead, okay? Those are the three different levels of flogging. And when we, when we tr- put together all four gospel accounts, which is called harmonizing the gospels, when we put together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's accounts, it appears actually that Jesus was flogged twice. John 19.1 here probably describes Jesus' first flogging, which was, which was that first level of terribly painful. But after Jesus was flogged the first time, the Jews... Uh, after Jesus was flogged, the Jews were still not satisfied. And they cried for Jesus to be crucified, and so Pilate had Jesus flogged again. Uh, but this time to the point of near death, that third level. Okay. So in this type of flogging, um, I'm not going to go into explicit detail, but uh, I'll describe briefly. The victim's clothes were taken off. Uh, they were tied to a post. And he was beaten with leather whips, and at the end of the whips, they were tied to the leather, um, shreds of leather, pieces of bone or metal, sharp bone or metal. And basically what would happen is several Roman torturers would, well, they beat Jesus until they were so exhausted they didn't have energy to beat him anymore. That was when they finished, when they were too tired to go on. And these beatings were so horrific that often the victims... Uh, bones and organs were exposed, and the victims would die right there tied to the post. Jesus was tied up to that post, and he was flogged for you and for me because he loves us. This is part of the punishment that our sin against God deserves. Whenever you think sin isn't a big deal, think about it again. This is the punishment required. <laughs> this is part of the punishment. And Jesus suffered it for us, for all who belong to him through faith. 
700 years earlier, before this flogging, the, the prophet Isaiah described Jesus' future flogging and beating when he wrote in Isaiah 52, 14 to 15, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So it says that after Jesus was flogged, his appearance was so marred that he didn't even resemble a human. Okay? The form of his body did not look like the form of any child of, of humanity. But because of this horrific torturous punishment, Isaiah 52, 15 says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Okay. What does he sprinkle them with? His blood. Because of the blood that he shed by being flogged and crucified, we have been forgiven and purified from our sins. Through faith in his perfect work, we contribute nothing to it. It's his blood that matters, not ours. Jesus sprinkles, it says, the nations with his blood because he will forgive and save people from every nation and people group on the earth. And then we read in John 19, two to three, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. So the Roman soldiers twisted together some thorny branches into a crown of thorns, uh, both to mock Jesus and at the same time to mock the Jews. Many historians think that uh, Jesus' crown was likely made from the branch of the date tree, which had thorns up to 12 inches long. And the crown obviously would have pierced into his head, been extremely excruciating to wear. And then we read that the soldiers put a purple robe onto Jesus because in the ancient world, purple was kind of a, it was a rare color. It was the color of royalty. It was the color that kings wore. And John says that the soldiers took turns coming up to Jesus and bowing before him, mocking him, and then they beat Jesus on the head and punched him in the face. And according to the other gospel writers, the soldiers also made a rod for Jesus, they found a rod which they pretended was his scepter as a king and they took the rod and beat him over the head with it. Jesus, the king of the universe, who loved us so much that he came to tell us the truth and to die for us, is flogged and mocked and beaten for being the king of the Jews and our king. He was beaten and shredded and mocked in our place for the glory of God by saving us. This is some of what fuels our desire to be like Christ and to be sanctified and to hate sin. Spurgeon said, I cannot trifle with the sin that murdered my best friend. 
we see here the seriousness of sin. And we also see that none of us can accomplish salvation by completely getting rid of sin ourselves. Only Jesus could. What a savior. John 19, four to six says, Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. So Pilate brings Jesus back out to the Jews. He's beaten to near death, okay? Probably bleeding profusely. And Pilate says, behold the man, behold this Jesus who you are so afraid of. He's been punished. And I declare again publicly, this man is not guilty. But the chief priests and the officers were still not satisfied. And they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And for a third time, Pilate tells the crowd, Jesus is innocent. If you want him dead, crucify him yourself because I'm not going to be any part of it. So what the Jews see here is they see Pilate caving. He's not giving in to their demands. And so they start manipulating their accusations against Jesus and they start accusing Pilate, okay, by demanding that Pilate must crucify Jesus because the Jewish law demands it. Uh, in John 19, seven to eight, it says, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to the, that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate was afraid. The anger of this mob was intensifying quickly and, and Pilate was scared that there was gonna be a riot and it was going to happen on his hands, and who was going down? Who would die? Him. And at the same time, it's also very possible that as a Roman who believed in many gods, Pilate was scared of killing Jesus if he really was God. And so we read in verses 9 to 11 that Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Because this scene here inside Pilate's headquarters again is overflowing with irony and grimacing and wickedness and unbelief and at the same time, the glory of God. You see the irony of Jesus who's physically torn to pieces, dressed up as a mock king, standing before a Roman governor who wants to be a king and who boasts about the authority he has over Jesus, the authority he has over God. Yet in all of Jesus' human weakness and in his agony here, he shows us his glory 
as our Savior and King. This is our King, you guys. If you want to know what God is like, this is what He's like. He suffers and dies for His people. He is the Good Shepherd. He loves us. He's the perfect Lamb of God without sin, slain for our sin. This is our King who has all the power in the universe, but who, according to Philippians 2, did not consider His power a thing to be grasped, but who relinquished it in order to suffer for us. Jesus was mocked, he was scourged, he was murdered in order to save you and me from the murderer, Satan. Jesus was dead and buried and resurrected from the dead, and then he, God the Father exalted it higher than ever before so that our old selves will be killed to sin, and so that we would be resurrected as new creations that now want to worship Jesus. It's a miracle of God that he does in our hearts when we believe this. And so in verse 11, Jesus tells Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So you see this interesting thing going on. You've got the free choice of man making decisions and you've got the sovereignty of God orchestrating all of this. And God is orchestrating all these things in order to glorify his name by saving his church from sin and Satan. And at the same time, Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and Annas and the chief priests and the officers and the soldiers and the crowd are all totally culpable and responsible for their actions. And Jesus tells Pilate here that since he's not the one out to actually kill Jesus, then the one who handed Jesus over to Pilate is actually guilty of greater sin. And probably Jesus, probably his guest is, is referring to Caiaphas, the high priest of the Jews. But inside that Roman headquarters, we know this, that Jesus rocked Pilate with his words and with his divine authority. Jesus is the one about whom people said, Who's ever, no one's ever spoken like this man. We read in John 19, 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but the Jews keep turning the heat up. They continue to threaten Pilate, and they tell him that if he lets Jesus go, then he is the enemy of Rome. So these Jews are essentially telling Pilate that he must choose between Jesus and Caesar. But he still doesn't make a decision. John 19, 13 to 14 says, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover it was about the sixth hour, which is noon, noonish. Now remember, they didn't have clocks, not, so that you would kind of judge by where the sun was at. But it was about the sixth hour, and in Jewish time, the day started, uh, or it was uh, six a.m. The sixth hour would have been noon. Okay. He said to the Jews, "Behold your king! Behold your king!" 
Pilate brought Jesus back outside. Jesus was, was bleeding. Pilate sits down on his judgment seat to declare the final judgment. He knows what he ought to do. Since he already has declared Jesus not guilty at least three or four times. But he mocks the Jews again. He says, behold, you're a king. And in verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So the chief priests essentially tell Pilate, we are only loyal to Caesar, are you? And with this statement, the Jewish leaders were also renouncing their own faith. They renounced their belief in the coming king who would be born in the line of David. They renounced the true king of heaven, Jesus, who was standing right there in front of them. And Pilate was torn between saving an innocent man who might be God and appeasing the Jews who were threatening to riot Verse 16 says, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The arrest and mockery and first flogging and second flogging and crown of thorns and slaps and punches could not suffice the Jewish crowd. They demanded that Jesus be crucified. And in the same way, the arrest and mockery and floggings and beatings of Jesus could not suffice. You see this? The punishment The wrath of God had not yet been fully poured out on Jesus. The punishment that our sin deserves demands death. Either our eternal death or the death of Jesus on the cross. Which one will you choose today? If you reject Jesus today, you're no different than the high priests and officers who rejected Jesus here and demanded his crucifixion. These were people, now keep in mind, these were people who considered themselves to be good people. We are the moral people of society. We're the loving people. We care about our community. Yet their works could not save them. Rather, their works obviously accused them before God as they rejected him in the flesh. And if you reject Jesus today, you are no different than Pontius Pilate, who knew that Jesus was God, but who feared people and sought to please people more than God. May God forgive us for fearing people more than we fear him. May God forgive us for fearing the rejection of our neighbors more than we fear them going to hell. You guys, all of us, our, our church, our community, our town, we were created by God because He wanted to share his grace and love and mercy with us and have a relationship with him. No greater love has a man than this, that that one should lay down his life for his friends. This is what we're seeing here, and this is what we're gonna see this week and talk about this Good Friday. How do we respond to this? Well, Jesus says, repent and believe. change your mind. That means you, you, need the, you need the Lord to help you repent. That doesn't mean just to stop doing things. I mean, that's part of it, but it means to, to stop seeing the solution as the world to the heart that was made for God. 
Repent and believe in Jesus. As Christians, we turn our eyes on Jesus and we worship him. We want to give ourselves to his kingdom. We confess our sins and we beg for strength to keep turning from our sins. Not so that we can be justified, but because Jesus has already justified us. And if you belong to Christ, get this, think about this. Be glad. Be glad. Because this suffering is not yours. It's his. He bore it. His suffering is done now, and yours will be done after this life if you are in Christ. So this Easter week, and let's plead this week for our neighbors, for our loved ones, for our family who don't know God. You know, they're rejecting Jesus. They might not even realize it. They're so hard, just like we've been. Let's pray that God would do a miracle in their heart, break their heart and give them a heart of flesh. Let's go to the world and show it and tell it about this Jesus who loves them and who wants to give them life. We've got to be clear with the gospel. We've got to tell the world about our Lord and Savior Jesus who was declared guilty in the court of man so that you and I might be declared not guilty in the court of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Jesus, we really do not even have words to thank you um, for what you've done here, God, but um, you've shown us through your word the seriousness of our sin, both in our lives on earth and for eternity. And by your grace, God, you've given many of us hearts that don't want it anymore, but we want you. You've shown many of us, God, that you love us, that you are just, and that you don't pretend that there's not sin in the world. You don't pretend that sin is whatever we call it, whatever we want it to be. Instead, Jesus, you've called sin, sin. You've died for sin, for your church. And you offer to us to accept the punishment we deserve. And we thank you for that. We thank you for offering to, to be our friend, to give us the helper, the Holy Spirit, who fills us and who ministers to us while we are on earth, God. We thank you for inviting us to eternal friendship with you that starts now and will last forever in heaven as we worship and glorify your name. So God, this Easter week, may you be on the forefront of our minds. As we look at the ugliness of sin, may we also celebrate the fact that we're not in it anymore, God. We're not chained to it anymore. If we're in you, you freed us from it. That's where our hope and joy is in, God, that you were resurrected and that you're living in power right now. You're in us. We pray for our Easter service next week that you would bring whoever you want to bring, that this week you would show us people that you want us to invite, perhaps, and that you would give us courage to do that. 
We love you, Lord. Help us just to glorify your name today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.